This morning we'll be looking at the text read, Ephesians chapter 5. So take a minute, please pray with me as we prepare to receive God's word. Father, thank you that we can gather within these walls to listen for your voice this morning, and we will trust, pray, and ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we'd have ears to hear and hearts to respond to what you, re- what you reveal. We're mindful that we live in a terribly uh, anxious, polarized, and dark time, but that this is also nothing new. Uh, we know our calling to shine as light, but at times we don't know how to do that, and at times we know how, but we need power. Would you speak to us of these things as we approach your table this morning, Father, for communion? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, I went to the Zoo Tunes. Has anyone done that? The Zoo Tunes? They're uh, old, dying musicians who go there and do things, I think. And uh, uh, at the time, the concert I heard was a few years ago was Bruce Hornsby. I love that guy because I play a little piano, and he's a very good piano player. And he has a song that uh, is haunting, and it's called That's Just the Way It Is. And the opening... Uh, Stanza reads this way, standing in line marking time, waiting for the welfare dime. They can't buy a job. A man in a silk suit hurries by and he catches the poor old lady's eye and just for fun he says to her, get a job. And then uh, the chorus, that's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is, but don't believe it. And the second verse, also about race. And then again, that's just the way it is. The third verse, the whole song actually, is about racism and and uh, Hornsby is saying, the, like, the prevailing culture has made peace with this. That's just the way it is. And then there's a word of hope. And the word of hope is this, but don't believe it. Don't believe that this is okay, it's not okay. Racism, yes, but it's not the only issue. Sexism, consumerism, individualism, nationalism, human trafficking, domestic violence, sexual slavery, environmental degradation. It's just the way it is. Of all people, the church should be the people rising up and saying, no, this is not okay. And not just saying it, but more significant than saying it, embodying something different. We can argue till we die about how political policy should solve problems, but Jesus says, I'm calling you not to solve political problems, I'm calling you to shine as light. So you as a community offer the world an alternative to the prevailing racism, sexism, nationalism, materialism, consumerism, environmental degradation, all that. Look, live differently. That's start there. Policy, I get it. Start with living differently. We have to start there. And I need to hear like an amen or something because we are so divided right now thinking that policy is our purview. And phones ringing is our purview. So, in this text, what Paul is saying is the light that we are called to be begins by shining in our, in our personal sphere of relationships. How we personally are dealing with race, with employment manager, uh, employee issues, with marriage, with parenting, with being a child in a... In a, in a family, all those things. And, and so what, what we're gonna do here this morning, as Paul articulates a call to live differently in marriage, parenting, and with respect to race relations, and particularly slavery is what he's talking about, I wanna start by looking at the status quo. This is just the way it is in our culture. And then, and then uh, this, there's a call 
for a new paradigm, but before there's, we live differently, there's three things. Understand God's will, be filled with the Spirit, find your path of subjection. And then, third, that's just the way it is unless we shine as light. So how do, we li- how do we live differently? That's the question on the table this morning. And we begin, we have to know what is the status quo. When Paul wrote this in uh, uh, the first century to the Ephesians, how were things with men and women, children, and the slaves? And it wasn't pretty. Here's the deal. Men and women, in a, in a Roman marriage ceremony, the state priest would, uh, after the ceremony, follow the couple to the bedroom. Are you guys married? Can I? Okay, good. Yeah. Like, I, don't wanna do, I will not do this unless you're married, right? Uh, yeah. They're like, they just sat together randomly, and it's like, whoa. Um, so anyway, so that's the deal. Uh, the priest follows him in, and then he says... Uh, to the wife in particular. He says, now here's the deal. He is going to be sleeping around with high-class prostitutes, uh, teenage boys, uh, other women, whoever he wants, and that's the way, that's what men do. You're going to be faithful only to him. And there was this invocation uh, toward uh, female monogamy and male kind of polyamory or infidelity or whatever you want to call it. And that was sanctioned. That was the Roman view of marriage. Men had this infinite sexual appetite and could sleep with anybody. Women were to remain faithful. That's just the way it is. And not only that, but the woman's testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. And not only that, but in Ephesus, where this couple lives, there's this gigantic temple to Artemis of the, uh, this, this goddess of fertility and worship of her requires of men uh, sleeping with temple prostitutes. And so men are going to the temple uh, for this kind of sanctioned prostitution worship. And the, meanwhile, the wife, no property rights, no divorce rights, uh, domestic violence. Women were, in a word, beaten down. And the thing that I want you to see here is... What happened, what was going on in Ephesus is just common. Not, not just in Ephesus, but around the world. Here's why. In Genesis 3, as a result of the curse, God says, he will rule over you. Hear me, very important. This is God's prophetic word. We made this mess. God didn't make the mess, but God is saying, listen, when you throw away my revelation and you live on your own, here's what happens. Might overtakes. And the, and, the, and the male, with, with his physical strength, will end up ruling over women. It ha- and it has happened all throughout, all throughout history, all around the world. That's just the way, what? It is. That's it. So, uh, that's first century men and women. First century children, even worse. Infanticide was very common. In other words, the killing of babies. Here's Cicero, uh, a Roman historian, in his book On the Laws. This is what he says. Uh, deformed infants are killed. It's just a statement, matter of fact. And then he defines deformity. Here's deformity. If a child is sick, if, it's, if a child is the wrong sex, if the, if the child is unpleasing to you, whatever that means, uh, if a child is unwanted, then uh, a child is just simply left out to die. The Stoic philosopher Seneca also, uh, Roman Empire, about 60 AD, wrote, wrote this in his book on anger. Mad dogs, we knock on the head. Uh, unwanted children, we drown at childbirth. If they're weak, if they're ab- abnormal, if they're, if they're not the gender of our preference, they're just, they're just tossed aside. So uh, uh, children had no value whatsoever. And then as children grew up, because they were often not valued, they grew up in rebellion to their parents, often squandering their inheritance on wine and sex. And we know that from the prodigal son story in the Bible. 
That's children. Now, slavery in the first century, slaves were considered property under Roman law, and a slave therefore had no, he wasn't a person, like not legally defined as a person. So unlike Roman citizens, slaves could be executed on a cross. Slaves were subject to sexual exploitation. Most prostitutes, or many prostitutes, were often slaves. Uh, You could torture your slave. You could summarily execute your slave without trial and be above any uh, recrimination or reproach because it was legal to do so. The testimony of a slave, again, like the testimony of a woman, inadmissible in the court of law, interestingly, unless a slave was tortured. So if you told the truth but we weren't sure you were telling the truth, we would still torture you to make sure that what you're saying was true and then your testimony would be admissible. So slaves were, 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 were tortured and had, had no rights and were bought and were sold and were killed summarily, that's slavery. So uh, how are relations in this beautiful, you know, Pax Romana, Ro- Roman Empire, how, how are relations? Men, women, parents, children, slavery, the whole thing is dark. I mean, if you're, if you're wealthy and male, and a slave, it's the peace of Rome, P-E-A-C-E. If you're anything else, it's oppression. That's, a, that's just the way it is. And people have made peace with it. And now Paul comes along and says, oh no, don't make peace with it. Well, why is this text appropriate for us to consider today? Because let's look at those categories today as well. Men and women, uh, Children and parents and slaves and, and racism. Regarding men and women, there are still to this day, of course, Genesis 3 is a real thing. He will rule over you. There are still destructive forms of patriarchy rampant across the globe and certainly in American culture and as well, I would say, often in evangelical culture. And within our own country, there are issues of pay equity. Uh, there, there are issues of women finding a, a voice in their marriage. There, there are issues of women being victimized more often by infidelity than men are v- victimized by infidelity. And domestic violence is still a huge, huge problem, not only out there, but within the church. Uh, and uh, women often feel resentful of their husbands with regard to sexuality because they, husbands don't care about their, women's, uh, their, their wives' satisfaction they're often, you know, done in two minutes and she's left wanting and that's a problem. And female mutilation and me too and sex trafficking. And, and around the world, women stuck in sexual slavery, illustration Ghana, where uh, for years we as Bethany Community Church supported a missionary who was working to end the Tricosi practice. The Tricosi practice uh, being a, a, a manner in which 10-year-old girls are given to priests as kind of a, a kind of a ransom payment or extortion, and this priest promises not to put a curse on your family if you give her give your ten year old daughter to her to him, and then she becomes for the rest of her life his sexual and uh, domestic servant. But she's usually you know cast off by the age of twenty seven or twenty eight because she's too old. That's just the way it is. Twenty first century today. What about children? Sue Palmer has written a book entitled Toxic Childhood in which she argues that today, in our culture, children are harmed by a combination of technological and social changes. We, you know this, parents in the room, children are growing up increasingly in a screen-based lifestyle, that's what she calls it, hyper-competitive education systems so that like by second grade, your kids are needing to you know, be virtuo, virtuoso violinists and 
stars of the soccer team and have a 4.0 and that kind of thing. And it's a pressure uh, that has resulted in the decline of random outdoor play and the commercialization of childhood, which has led to increases among elementary school children in the presenting problems related to anxiety, depression, eating disorders, body image issues. Children are increasingly not okay, body, soul, and spirit and are therefore now increasingly drugged as well with prescription medications to deal with these rampant problems that weren't non-existent 50 years ago, but much rarer. That's children in our culture. Race, slavery, well, you know, we ended slavery, right? 1863, but listen, if you go to Germany, you can visit a concentration camp, Dachau, right outside of Munich. I've been there a couple of times. And this is Germany's attempt to, like, own their guilt, actually. It's very powerful, if you ever have a chance, worth your time. We now, in America, have our version of Dachau. Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy, uh, is, the, is the brainchild and visionary behind what's called the Lynching Museum, where you can go down in the south and go to a museum. I watched a thing on 60 Minutes about this, and you can see the, the names recorded and the stories told of every black murdered in the second half of the 19th century on well into the 20th century, uh, summarily, like gang murdered in, in uh, communities throughout the United States. And Stevenson would argue that in contrast to Germany, there's still staggering evidence that we have fa failed to fully own uh, the, the racism issues of our culture, failed to fully own. Uh, the evidence would be incar incarceration rates among blacks, white on black police shootings, again, pay inequity, employment statistics, Charlottesville. I mean, we could go on and on. So uh, there we are. Century one, century 21. Uh, marriage, children, race. That's just the way it is. This, so great, isn't it good that we're saved? Wait a minute. Here's the thing. Our, our calling demands a new paradigm. Like we're called to shine as light in the midst of all that is darkness. And so I want to read Ephesians 5 under this category of imperatives for a new paradigm, verses 15 to 17. Let me just very briefly read. Listen carefully as I read because this frames what we're about to do as we reconstruct those relationships, right? Ephesians chapter 5, and this is, this is how it reads. Therefore, be careful how you walk. So we're living in kind of a dark time. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And then here's, this is the crux. Don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. In other words, uh, understand God's will means this. Don't ever say, that's just the way it is, right? Don't allow yourself to be carried passively by the winds of culture. Because when you're carried passively by the winds of culture... To the extent that you're passively carried, you no longer shine as light. And remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter five, he said, you are the light of the world, therefore let your light shine. And then he went on and this is what he said. Uh, if you put a light under a bushel, the light has lost its point. If salt is no longer salty, it's good for nothing. 
Let your light shine. So in a world where the overwhelming current is toward racism, sexism, uh, the violation of human rights, in that world, I'm calling you to live differently. You must not just say, I have my ticket punched. I'm going to stay sober, stay faithful, and go to heaven. You are called to transformed relationships. That's how light shines. So we have to let our light shine. And to do that, we have to understand God's will and live it. We have to live it. I was a pastor in Friday Harbor for a number of years, as many of you know. And every year there was a fair, and we had an outreach plan one year where uh, we, we made a brochure and rented a booth at the fair and handed these brochures out in our attempt to offer an alternative narrative to the, what was called in the 80s the New Age Movement. Now, I know the New Age Movement is like not a thing anymore, right? That's kind of dead. But at the time, it was super, super popular, particularly in Friday Harbor. There was this gal, Jay-Z Knight. She was a channeler. Like, she would give, you know, words. And she was this millionaire and had horses down in Olympia and a place in Friday Harbor. And people would come to hear, like, her, you know, quote-unquote wisdom. So people would come to, you know, new, it's all, you know, crystals and, you know, pyramids and shining light, all that stuff, right? You guys are, some of you, if you're old, you're familiar with it. Otherwise, there was a time, right? Either way, either way, that's the deal. So, we made a brochure, and here's what it says on the front. There's a new age coming. We got a little pyramid with lights, you know, flickering out. Peter Max, kind of old school psychedelic art. You open it, and this is what it says. Imagine a world in which, you know, uh, weapons of war melted down into tools of agriculture. Imagine a world in which everybody has enough. Imagine a world in which there's no homelessness. Uh, uh, imagine a world in which there's a banquet and uh, at the banquet is a person from every tribe, every race, every culture. And they're all, you know, all holding hands and they're all worshiping together uh, and it's beautiful and it's you know, unity and it's, and it's peace and it's justice, and it's abundance. Imagine such a world. And then you turn the page, and it's like all the texts from Isaiah that are speaking of those very things, right? Like ascending the mountain of God, every nation, and melting uh, the, 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 the swords down into plowshares, and, and a fine banquet with aged wine. So scripture, scripture, scripture. And then you open it again. Hey, this is what God's people are about. Well, here's what would happen. People would take the thing, they loved the, you know, the pyramid and the flashing lights, and so they'd start reading. Oh man, yeah, you know, peace, justice, abundance, we're all in. And then they see this, as soon as they saw Bible references, they'd drop it and just walk away without a word. It happened all the time. Like, this was not working. Then, an old guy, Peter's age, right? Second row. Um, so he comes up. And he, he picks it up, and he starts reading, he reads the whole thing. And he looks at me, he says, he says, this is amazing. He says, I had no idea this was Christianity. I thought Christianity was just, you know, oh, no, this is God's kingdom. He says, fantastic. Let me ask you, uh, do you have a meal that you serve to the poor? I said, No. What, are you doing anything to address homelessness here on the island? Because, you know, there are people living out by Egg Lake, just sleeping on the ground. I said, no. He says, what are you guys doing about uh, the, 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 the wealth gap between the rich and poor? I said, no. <laughs> and and then, I'll never forget, this is what he said. I thought so. 
sets it down, walks away. Let me tell you why this is a big deal. Jesus didn't say in Matthew 6, wait for the kingdom of God. There's a verb. What did Jesus say? Seek the kingdom of God. What does that mean? How do I seek the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God is Jesus returning, what am I supposed to do? Get down here. Is that seeking? No. Seek means this. Make God's reign visible now. That's what it means. And so in a world of human trafficking, be a voice that embodies a different way of sexuality. In a world of oppressive parenting or, or, or pressure parenting, be a voice that, that offers an alternative. In a world of racism, be a different voice. Embody the reign of Christ. That's what it means to understand God's will, verse 17. We as a community need to continually have conversations, not asking what Washington ought to do, but asking what we ought to be. Does that make sense? Because the most important thing is for us to offer an alternative to the prevailing culture and no party nails it. So we, so we need here to understand God's will and then work in our community to embody it. And the only way we will ever embody it will be to be filled with the Holy Spirit because once I understand God's will, I have to allow God's reign to rule in me and change my sexuality and how I deal with money and the food I eat and the, and the work I do and the recreation I enjoy. Every choice should be saturated with God's reign and the Holy Spirit's power so that I embody an alternative to the prevailing oppressive and dark systems of the world. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And then, this is radical language, what I must do then is find, listen, my path of subjection. I have to find my path of subjection. Now, what does that mean? Well, verse 21 of Ephesians 5 says this, be subject to one another. So here's the world in which we live. On the one hand, oppressive hierarchy. Do you understand what I mean by that? We talked about the marriage ceremony in Rome. Oppressive hierarchy, uh, the man over the woman. Generally, that's the oppressive hierarchy. Oppressive hierarchy in parenting often. Parents uh, seeking to use their children for their own unfulfilled ambitions and, 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 and try to make their children, quote unquote, more successful than they are, but never knowing their children, loving their children, nurturing their children, oppressive there. Oppressive race relationships. And so here's, here's the challenge. In a world of oppression, there's kind of this, this reaction over here, and we go, no, oppression is terrible, so the answer is egalitarianism. And I, I'm here to tell you that the text says this morning, no, that's not the answer either. Look, oppre oppressive hierarchy, no good. Egalitarianism, code for anarchy, also no good. So, so like, how do we do this? Here's how. We need this third way, and the third way with respect to this stuff, watch this, it's not hierarchy, it's not egalitarianism, it's mutual subjection. That's it. I'm subject to you, you're subject to me. How does that work? Glad you asked. That's the rest of the sermon, right? So, so now what I'm going to do is look at uh, the husband-wife thing, the parenting thing, and, and the slave-master thing, and apply it in our own lives today, because that's exactly what Paul does. So Paul says in verse uh, 21, be subject to one another. And now, with respect to husbands and wives, this is what he says. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. And here's the deal. 
People on the left who are all into egalitarianism, they don't even like to talk about this verse because they want to be like this. No, no, no. You know, it's all the same. It's not all the same. It says here in the text, wives, be subject to your husbands. So what does that mean? Well, Lacey here is married to Eric, who was leading worship. And so when Lacey said, like I do to Eric, when she said that, she became subject to him. In, the, in this sense, at least in this sense, her fate is tied to his. Do you understand what I mean by that? Everyone in the room who's married understands that. Like when you marry, this is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. Your success is my success. Your failure is my failure. Your loss is my loss. Your sickness is my sickness. Your wealth is my wealth, but also your poverty is my poverty, right? I'm with you. We're, we're a thing now. And in that sense, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, off the chart radical, two women and single women in the room, this is what he says. So remember, single women, you've got it good. Why? Because you're not yoked to somebody. There's zero risk of someone else dragging you down. You are on your own. Wives, on the other hand, you're yoked. It says that in the text, you're yoked. And, that, and that's, um, that's what it means to be subject for the, for the woman. You're yoked to another, receive him, sacrifice for him, serve him. Now, this is, the next part is even more radical because this is what he says. Husbands, love your wives the, the, in the way in which Christ loved the church. This is very interesting because it says Christ loved the church and in verse 25, Christ gave himself up for the church. And that word gave himself up is this word, paradidomai. And what it means is I'm, when I'm giving up, what I'm doing is I'm surrendering to the power of another. And so then you read this and you go, wow, I, I the husband, am supposed to love the way Christ surrendered to the power of the church. How did Christ ever surrender power to the church? Oh, are you kidding me? Over and over and over again. He washed the, he washed the disciples' feet. That's surrendering power, right? Uh, he, he served and blessed in order to woo the church. But listen, Christ never imposed himself on the church. Do you understand? Christ never said, I am God, you will love me. Bring me a beer, I'm the head. That's, that's not Jesus. That's just not Jesus. Like, it, like his, by, by giving himself up, here's Jesus standing at the gates of Jerusalem, weeping, saying what? I wanted you and you said no. And because I love you in a paradidomi way, I will let you say no. Ho. Oh, what if husbands did that? Are you kidding me? It would change the world. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. What if, what, if, what if a husband understood that the way to love his wife is to surrender to her power over him? To, to never impose himself on her sexually by saying, you know, if you don't give me sex, I'm just gonna go do porn somewhere. So come on. What if instead he lets her set the tone, allows her to say, not tonight. I'm being explicit here. And if she can say, not tonight, and he honors that, do you know what that requires of him? He has to become like Jesus to her. 
so that she doesn't say not tonight. He, maybe he makes the bed. Maybe, maybe he brings her her coffee. Maybe he clears the dishes. Maybe he gives her a back rub when she says, I'd like a back rub. Maybe, because, why do I say this? Because how did Christ win over the church? This word, woo. <laughs> right? He invited, not imposed. And so what if the husband listens and helps and serves and honors and, and empowers her voice to set that tone? And then what if the woman giving such a voice uses that voice to bless and receive her man in kind of a playful Song of Solomon way, as we went over that earlier in the year. And she does that by welcoming him in the best sense of the word and affirming him. Do you know what the result of that would be? I'm speaking from experience now, radical monogamy. Radical, I mean, I don't want anybody else. You kidding me? I love, and I use the word, uh, loosely, winning my wife. I didn't win her the day she put a ring on. I try and win her every day. Do you see? By empowering her voice. This is, what, this is exactly what Paul's saying. He's not just talking about sex. It's the whole thing. So that's, that's transformative. What Paul is envisioning is this shift in paradigm from strong enough to control and call the shots and, and, and impose your will to this. Oh no, strong, like Jesus, strong enough to empty yourself. Strong enough to serve. Strong enough to open the door. Strong enough to woo. Strong enough to invite but not demand. Strong enough to kneel and wash feet. Strong enough. That's Jesus. Wow. Wanna live, you want to live like Jesus? That's Jesus. Transforms everything. Now, parents and children. The text calls for children to live under their parents' authority. Children, obey your parents. And this is, of course, very important, as we all know, because children are not only physically vulnerable, but children need parents' wisdom to initiate them into life. Without it, they'll never learn the values that enable them to grow into adults who know their gifts and love God and serve others. They just won't, they will never grow up because they need the wisdom that the parents have. But the main point of the text is offered to parents and offered to fathers in particular. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And it's, this is significant. And why is, it, why is this word given to fathers? Here's why. Because uh, moms, te- and I'm generalizing, of course, but in the text, we know this, moms are more nurturing right, than husbands. How many agree with me? Would you raise your hand? Like, we could argue about it, but we don't have time. But like, I'm speaking, we win, I win. (laughs) Moms are more nurturing. I I could give you 10 stories about this in my own, you know, with our kids and how my wife has always been nurturing. But forget it, we'll just say that. So the word is given to parents because, uh, excuse me, to, to dads, because dads need the word, right? And, and what, what it's saying here, what the text is saying, when it says don't provoke your children, right, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, is don't impose your authority. In other words, if the way that you are shaping your child is by appealing to the authority card, you're already lost. I'm the dad, you will, you know, do what I say. No, the text says there's a different way. There's discipline involved, but it's a a discipline that wins. I'm now in uh, 
like a family commune because my daughter and her husband and my granddaughter are living with us for a few weeks. And so just last night, family meal, and there's a, there's a thing with my granddaughter. She needs to be disciplined. And I've, I haven't done that kind of stuff for years because my kids are 34, 32, 28. So I've forgotten. Man, I was so impressed, right? I won't even go into the details, it doesn't matter. It took 20 minutes to do this. Tons of emotional energy, both parents. But in the end, uh, you know, here's my little granddaughter and she's transformed by this one little incident. And of course, any parent in the room knows there, there will be thousands upon thousands of these incidents before a child hits 18 and that's just 18. It, it never ends, <laughs> right? So, uh, Jesus teaching us here to parent in a way that just so honors this young life. This life, no matter its ability, disability, no matter its intellect, lack of intellect, this life is only made in the image of God, but children teach us how to approach God through vulnerability, through humility, through honesty, through transparency. Yes, learn from your children and parent out of that wisdom. So that's... that's Parenting. And then uh, the slave and master thing, um, very interesting. Slaves, he says, serve your master as if you're serving Christ. So Paul here doesn't uh, deconstruct the institution of slavery. He, he hints at it more later on because there are ethical trajectories in the Bible that allow us to extrapolate out as, as we should do. But in this case, no, he's not, he's not uh, blowing up slavery. He's saying to slaves, listen, serve your masters as if you're serving Christ. And then to the master, he says, masters, I want you then to t treat your slave the same way the slave is treating you. Isn't that interesting? So how's the, slave to, uh, how's the master to treat the slave? The master is to treat the slave as if the slave is Christ. And if a master and slave relationship, or in contemporary culture, an employee-employer relationship is framed in this manner, it blows up an oppressive hierarchy, but not in a way that's egalitarian. It shows a third way, mutuality of subjection. Do you see? So that's the thing. Now, so here, like, we come to the kind of conclusion here, and we go, yeah, uh, these are radically different than hierarchy or egalitarianism, but is it really possible to love this way? Because this is beautiful, I think it's a beautiful vision, but then we leave this room and we go, man, uh, we so easily slip back into our kind of spiritual muscle memory and you know, here's, the, here's the husband and here's the wife and here's the dad and here's the child. Like, can we live differently? Yes, here's why, I'm gonna tell you a story. There's this ministry, it's called Roots of Empathy and it brings... Uh, they bring babies into, into classrooms, usually sixth, fifth or sixth grade classrooms, because uh, they found now that when sixth graders can interact with an infant, bullying actually goes down among those sixth graders because it creates empathy. So it's called Roots of Empathy. So uh, there's this child in this one class who's older than everybody else in the class, his, his head is shaved, this sixth grade class, his head is shaved, he's got a ponytail, he's already grow, started to grow a beard because he's been held back a few times. Sixth grade, right? He's had a terrible life. 
His mother was murdered in front of his eyes when he was four years old. His dad was already abandoning the family. So he was left with no one. And he'd been in a succession of foster homes, some of which were abusive to him ever since, since the age of four. So here he is in his class of sixth graders. He's older. And here comes uh, this Roots of Empathy group for a, a, a morning. So the, the instructor comes in and then she invites this young mother to come up with her baby, Evan, and the young mom says to the class, she has a child carrier, and she says, uh, I can't get Evan to sit in a way where he puts his head on my chest. The baby wants to, Evan always wants to be outward, right? And so she says, Man, I just wish that, uh, I wish that Evan would, you know, put his head on my chest. This is the mom speaking. Wish he was more cuddly. So then, you know, class is winding down and the mom says, hey, does anybody want to try on the carrier? And it's about to be lunchtime. Nobody raises their hand except who? This eighth grade kid with a beard. <laughs> Darren. Yeah, I want, to put the, I want to put the carrier on. So he puts the carrier on and then he says to the mom, hey, could, would, could I have the baby in there? And mom, of course, is rightly a little concerned but she, puts, she gives the baby to Evan, excuse me, to Darren, and Darren takes Evan and very gently puts Evan in facing his chest. Immediately, the baby snuggles right in, puts his head right here. Devin, all the kids are gone now, they're at recess. Devin goes off and he sits in a corner and he just holds his baby, the baby falls asleep. And then Devin, <laughs> he comes back to the mom, little Evan sleeping on his chest. This is what he says. If no one has ever loved you, do you think you could still be a good father? <laughs> yeah, you could. Do you know why? Here's why. Love wins. Love means vulnerability. Love means service, love means trust, love means giving. And I'm here to tell you, in this dark world, the current takes us away from all of that. Doesn't happen by instinct, happens by redemption and renewal and transformation. Listen, folks, this is the gospel right here. Service, vulnerability, giving trust. On the last night of Jesus' life, we'll, we'll take this cup and bread in a moment. But before there was a bread and a cup, there was a towel that Jesus wrapped around himself. And then he got down on his knees. You remember the story? And he washes each disciple's feet. And then this is what Jesus said. He said, listen, I've just washed your feet. Why? So that you can now wash one another's feet. Because I'm, listen, I'm calling you not to hierarchy, not to blind egalitarianism, but to mutual subjection. And I, who am God, have loved and served and blessed and given and poured out so that you could be full. And now that you're full, love and serve and bless and give and pour out. 
no matter who's in power, no matter, who, no matter what is the policy, love and serve and bless and give and pour out. That's how we change the world. That's how light shines here. That's bright enough that people driving by one in. Not by arguing on Facebook, by loving like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, we are, at least I am burdened that your church is caught up in semantics and gunslinging and arrow throwing and policy debates while we ignore this beautiful invitation to love with the love of Christ in our marriages, in our families, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with people of other races. Teach us, Father. Renew us. That we might be people of hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.